0: On this week's episode, I talked to psychotherapist Terry Cole about how to set boundaries and overcome codependency and overfunctioning. What I think
1: matters. And the people in the front row or the VIP section of my life also need to think that how I feel, what I want, and what I think matters. Now, I'm not saying it needs to matter more than how they feel, think, and want, but it has to matter.
0: Hi, and welcome to The Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting, family, children, relationships, mental health, and pop culture hear from a variety of medical professionals, psychological experts, authors, celebrities, and other parents with inspiring stories. You'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered. You'll laugh, you'll cry, you'll learn, and you'll have fun. Terry Cole, thank you so much for being here today with us on the podcast. I am so excited to talk to you about boundaries, codependency, and even covert narcissism. Welcome to the show.
1: Why, thanks for having me, Kim.
0: Thank you. So I want to start first by talking about boundaries. Why are they so hard? I feel like they're just so hard to do, and I feel like they're really intimidating for people to think about. So will you share with us, just to, um, just to start the show off with, you know, what are boundaries, and why are they so hard to actually <laughs> make with others? Yes.
1: Um, well, my definition of boundaries is, I want you to think about them as your own personal rules of engagement. It lets other people know what's okay with you and what's not okay with you. Your boundaries are made up of your particular preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, like your non-negotiable things in relationships, in work, in life. And it's not enough to know what they are, which most people don't even know what their preferences, limits, and deal breakers are. But you have to know them and have the ability to clearly and concisely communicate them. So the real question of why is it hard <laughs> is because no one ever friggin' taught us how to do it. Right. And it's it's worse than that though, Kim. It's it's not just that we didn't we weren't taught. It's that we were given corrupted data about it. We were taught. I mean, weren't you raised to be a good girl? Absolutely. That right, be nice above all other things. It was like being nice was like the virtue held up above and people better perceive you as being nice. I don't even know when you really think about nice, is saying yes when you want to say no under the guise of being nice, is it actually nice? Of course not. It's being dishonest. And it sets us up to stay dissatisfied in our relationships because when we don't have clear boundaries, when we can't communicate them how we feel, people don't actually. Know us. So we have a million good reasons to have terrible boundaries, to not know how to do it, from society to our families. No matter what country, what culture you grew up in. I mean, I've taught my boundary boot camp course to people in 192 countries. Wow! And never one time did someone go, "Oh, really? No, I learned this from my family." No, not in school, not in, not even in grad school. So there was such a need that I wrote Boundary Boss because I was like, "We need a guide." From step one to executing boundaries with ease and grace without our hearts slamming out of our chest, without sweating profusely because we're so afraid of what other people are going to think or being rejected. Yeah, that's my two cents on boundaries.
0: Yeah, I love it. And, you know, I'm actually going to pick up a copy of your book because I think even if people think they have good boundaries, most likely. They don't. And like you said, I, I think we're we're built up to be these kind people, as you mentioned, these people pleasers, to not hurt others' feelings, to you know always make ourselves available if someone needs us. Of course, we're going to help. And then we end up getting resentful and overwhelmed and burnt out because we're helping so many other people that we're not really focusing on ourselves and doing what's right for us. So we end up right. saying yes when we should be saying no, like you said.
1: Yes. And we're also... The resentment is real, like what you're talking about. So what what are the biggest myths around boundaries, right? Is that if you have good boundaries, you have to be mean. You have to be bitchy. You're aggressive. You're controlling. You're a drama queen. You're, you know, so many people would say, I'm afraid if I get good at drawing boundaries, I'm going to lose my relationships. Um, then you have the myth that, you know, real love soulmates Don't need boundaries. Not true. The only kind of healthy love there is, is boundaried love. But you know, crappy rom-coms have told us that that is not actually true. Right. Right. So moving into this, this mindset of what are, what are the biggest myths? Because those things hold us back too. It's not just what we learned in our family of origin. It's what's expected of us in the world. So we're really unlearning a whole bunch of stuff and learning a whole bunch of new stuff.
0: Right. And I do feel like I'll speak for myself that it's harder to set boundaries with people that are closest to us, maybe Mm -hmm. our parents or our partners, our children Mm -hmm. versus, you know, someone I meet at a a school board meeting or even one of my clients or something like that. I feel like, you know, if it's more of an acquaintance, it's easier to set that boundary because they're not going to judge us maybe as easily. Do you find that in your work?
1: Yes, I do. I look at it this way: all of the way that we relate to people, we're doing these boundary dances with them, right? Think about you know you and your partner. I do this, you do that. You do this, I do that, right? We have these boundary dances of the way we respond and react to each other. But it's like a dance, and if you think of your family of origin, they're literally like the OG dance troupe, right? They're the original people that we've been doing these dances with for the longest in our lives. And so much of the time we have difficulty drawing boundaries with our aging parents or the adults who raised us, whoever I call them parental impactors, because it could be anybody, because they're the ones who taught us (laughs) the disordered boundaries. And clearly they think that that's the right way to be. So there's a whole loyalty thing that comes in. If I change, if I draw a boundary. Let's say with my mother, I was having, I was uh, talking about this the other day that, you know, years ago, my mom would want to come visit me on a Saturday. I don't live that far from her. And she would say, okay, so I'll be there around nine. And I would say back in the day, I would always wish to tell her I wanted to take a nine o'clock yoga class, which she knows I take, right. which means she really shouldn't come until 10, but she was still planned to come at nine and there would be no conversation about it, but I would be resentful. And then when I started getting healthier, I was like, "Mom, the coffee's on, door's unlocked, because I live in the middle of nowhere, and I'm um, I'll be back from yoga at ten. So come whenever you want. Vic is home. There's food, you know. Do." And I wasn't doing it in a passive-aggressive way. I just got clear, and I believed that if if my mother, it's not for my mother to give me permission to go to yoga as a grown adult. It's for me to take care of myself, and she she stopped saying she was coming at nine. She was like, oh, okay, I'll plan to be there in 10 because you have yoga. Right. So sometimes, with, especially with family of origin, that was more of a boundary where I didn't I didn't need her permission. I didn't need her to approve. I just needed to actually take the action. And she then got on board with, oh, okay, I guess we're not meeting on Saturdays until after 10. I was like, that's correct. Come anytime you want. I won't be there after 10. <laughs>
0: And I think that initial time is the scariest, that initial boundary setting is the scariest especially mm-hmm. if it is someone that's close to us, you know, and yep. then once we do it and once we practice it, it, it doesn't become as scary if it starts working, you start realizing that, oh, I can set this boundary and other people will start respecting it or possibly they won't. And that's a problem that <laughs> maybe should have come to the surface a long time ago about that particular relationship.
1: Yes, but but here let's talk about what it means to be working though, when you said like it's working, you negotiating for your needs, prioritizing your preferences, telling the truth about how you feel, regardless of what the other person does, you already won. It, it's already working because your self-esteem, your sense of self, your self-worth, right? It gets such a boost from you having the courage to negotiate for yourself that and yes if let's say my mother threw a hissy fit and maybe you know was so so mad yes that would require more conversations and that would require something else but the reality is i didn't need to stay resentful of my mother messing up my saturday yoga because i was just letting it happen without negotiating for what I really wanted which was for her to come after 10 a, 10 a.m. you know right. so I think that we want to get really clear that it's not about it's not like a lever as we know to control other people it's us knowing ourselves and thinking hey you know what how I feel what I want what I think matters and the people in the front row or the vip section of my life also need to think that how I feel what I want and what I think matters. Now, I'm not saying it needs to matter more than how they feel, think, and want, but it has to matter so that you can actually um, be in a relationship where your needs are getting met.
0: Right. Absolutely. Now, how does poor boundary setting affect codependency? I'm going to kind of switch gears a little bit and talk yeah. about that. Oh,
1: oh, trust me. No, it's the same gear, dude.
0: Yeah. We're literally <laughs> that, not switching that gears. Up, you know? what, what is codependency and how does that show up, especially when it comes to poor boundary setting?
1: All right. Well, codependency, according to me, is when we are overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the decisions, the relationships, and the situations of the people in our life to the detriment of our own internal peace, maybe our physical, financial, spiritual, emotional well-being. Because a lot of us, we're all lovers, right? Of course, we're all invested in the people we love being happy. We want them to get what they want. So I'm not saying that's bad or that's codependent. That's just called loving someone. But if it's to the point where it's impacting, negatively impacting our own internal peace, where when they have a problem That problem becomes your problem in your mind immediately. Mm -hmm. Where And if you don't know, anyone listening who's like, I don't know, is that me? I want you to check your urgency. When your friend gets in touch with you with a problem, how urgent does it feel to you to come up with a solution to that problem? Are you making phone calls? Are you Googling immediately? Are you underlining stuff in a book? Are you like, I know a friend, I already emailed them about... like just in extreme problem-solving mode, that is a codependent reaction. So how, back to your question, how does um, the inability, like uh, how does unhealthy boundaries relate to codependency? Well, codependency is the foundation of codependency is unhealthy boundaries. So you cannot have good boundaries and be codependent. Because they do they literally do not, they cannot coexist like that. Because the actual definition of codependency is that if you are the person who is always fixing, doing, feeling the other person's feeling, overthinking, overcorrecting all the things, we're endlessly, and I know this so well, because I'm a recovering codependent, so no judgment, trust me. But we're endlessly walk, you know, stepping over the boundaries of other people and their ability To be sovereign, their ability to uh, live their lives, make their own mistakes, right? A codependent response is, I know exactly what you should do. A healthy response is, What do you think you should do? I trust your gut instinct. It's your life. I love you. I'm here for you. Tell me how I can best support you. And even if my friend says, Tell me what to do when I say, How can I best support you? I go, Hey, man. What makes you think I know what you should do, right? I love you, but you're you literally are the only one who knows I can tell you what I would do. So if that would be helpful, I will. But I do not know what you should do, and neither does anyone else listening to this who thinks they do. And I learned this the hard way in therapy because I was such a high functioning codependent. um and the difference, if we talk about the difference between codependency and high functioning codependency, which is a term that I created because my demographic is you, basically, a very capable, competent woman, generally, who's doing all the things for all the friggin' people, but is kind of burnt out and exhausted sometimes and doesn't really feel that satisfied or maybe doesn't really feel that known at times because we're such people pleasers. And again why is why am i passionate about this oh because i know all of you because i am you you know and i and i thank god have moved through this but nobody talks about this so when i was a therapist i would talk about codependency and my clients are like are you nuts everyone's dependent on me buddy i'm making all the money i I'm, I'm the rock for my friend group for my family of origin i do all the things i'm like oh my clients don't know what codependency is right so i added high functioning and then I really discovered throughout my research and basically being in the trenches for 25 years of my therapy clients, that it is a different brand of codependency because we're so high functioning, we make it look easy. So people don't know how tired we are or how hurt we feel about things or how pissed off we are about things or how underappreciated we feel how about all the things we do. Does this resonate?
0: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I'll speak for myself. It absolutely resonates with me and I see it all the time too. And it's like, you want to reach out and just educate and help and, you know, and that's still doing more the same. Right. But, you know, and I see this a lot with parents because, you know, my specialty is with children and and I work with a lot of children and and their parents also. Mm -hmm. And so I see this codependency happening from a parent-child relationship and even that over-functioning with the parent-child relationship, a parent over-functioning for their child, a parent, you know, doing, helping them with their homework, maybe even doing their homework for them. Or like you said, when it comes to feelings or a situation at school, when a child comes home and says, I had a bad day at a situation with a friend, well, let me just fix it for you. I'll go call her mom and we'll talk it out, right? And you know, it's it's hard because you want to protect your kids, you want to help your children, but there's a detriment to that over functioning behavior because then your kids won't learn how to do it themselves.
1: Yes. And you won't always be here to do it. And and here's the thing codependency at its core is a covert or an overt bid to control the outcomes of other people's situations. So and even be- with your kids, right? I mean, right. There's, an, there's a certain appropriateness if someone's being bullied. Of course, I'm not saying we should let that seven-year-old be on their own. Right. I'm saying we need to teach them problem-solving skills, critical thinking, deductive reasoning. All of these things, they don't happen when you are fixing all the problems. They happen when you go, all right, babe, what do you think you should do? Before we do anything... Tell me what your thoughts are. What does your gut say about what you should do about what happened between you and Johnny? And then just shut up and let the kid talk. And maybe they have a terrible idea. I think I should hit him in the head with a brick. Okay, well, I don't think we should do that. So let's get more creative than that because violence isn't the answer, right? But at least you know what the kid is thinking, how they feel. Help them. We're we're supposed to be co-regulating with kids, their emotions, but a lot of parents can't self-regulate. So it's, how can we teach what we don't know, but you can learn, which is what my high functioning codependency workshop is about. And this is what the boundary boss book is about is us learning so that we can stop these cycles that are, that don't put our kids in the best situation in life. We need these skills, you know?
0: Right. And I love role playing with my clients and even my own children. And like you said, you know, lending them a voice, empowering them to make a decision, letting them know that their decisions are valued, that they have a voice, and that they're capable of making their own decisions. And if, if that decision like the violence you just talked about isn't maybe the best way to go about solving a problem you know like you said giving them the ideas and I do it through role play well you know let's pretend that I'm Johnny and you're so and so and let's let's talk it out let's see Mm -hmm. if you respond this way how do you think it's going to turn out in the end how do you think Johnny's going to respond if you say this and if you say this and it's something different then how do you think Johnny's going to respond to that and then ask them which choice do you think would be better Which is so,
1: that's so great teaching them because again, now, now we're teaching it, it, you're visualizing the outcome, which we're teaching kids. Like there are ramifications for whatever, whichever choice you make, whether it's hitting someone with a brick or whether it's sitting down and having a conversation, there are consequences for our own actions. And it's such an empowering way of teaching a kid that like which consequence or which outcome is the one you want because you are very empowered right now, kid, to choose which one.
0: Right. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to talk about possibly some tips or ideas of how we can be a recovering codependent. And I also want to talk about covert narcissism. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn. So I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about boundary setting codependency and overfunctioning. When we find ourselves in those types of spots in our lives, I know you wrote a book on it. You're an expert on it on social media, et cetera, et cetera. What are some tips that you have on how we can recover or, or maybe even just be more aware that this is happening to us and give us that empowerment to try and do things differently moving forward?
1: I would start with, we have to be able to identify where we need boundaries in our lives. So it's not enough to say like, well, what could I say or what could I do? It's start with taking a resentment inventory, like right now. And I guarantee you, every person listening would be able to know if you're holding resentment against someone, why? What is it about? Because usually that's either where, either where a boundary is being violated You haven't set a boundary, right? Or a need of yours is going unmet. So once we go, oh my gosh, look, I'm so resentful at my mother, at my partner, at my sister, let me, then I say, okay, write about why, what is happening, because that will give clarity on what boundaries are being crossed. And here's the thing so much of the time, you know, I I put boundary violators kind of in categories where we have like the boundary first timers which are people that even if you think they've been a boundary bully forever, if you have never spoken up in words and been like, hey, that doesn't work for me, then we still have to call them a boundary first timer because you might be shocked when you say to your friend who always manages to pick a place to eat that's close to her house, which makes you drive 45 minutes or whatever the thing is, that you might, right? You might be shocked if you say, hey, you know what? I would love it if this time when we meet, there's a great place that's near me because I've kind of been doing all the schlepping and I would love it to be a little bit more equitable. Exactly. Your friend might be like, oh my God, I never even thought about that. You're right. You're always driving the most. You are correct and I'm happy to do it. That's probably half the time that's going to be the response. And you don't even have to say, I've been doing all the driving. You can literally just assert your, your preference which is that your friend come meet you nearer to your house on this day. And if your friend goes, No, we always meet over here, I want to meet over here, then then you can sort of go into it more and say, Hey, I actually have been doing a lot of the driving and I would feel I I don't want to be the only one driving. I would like it if it were more equitable. There are ways to have the conversations with people. And of course, you're also gonna get people that don't want that boundary dance to change because they feel threatened. So they're going to do what Harriet, Dr. Harriet Lerner, who's a huge, oh my God, I love her so much. She's so brilliant. Um, she's written so many books: The Dance of Intimacy, The Dance of Um uh, the Dance of Anger. That was the first one I read, like seriously, probably 30 years ago, I swear to God. But she's got a million books and she's amazing. Her name is Dr. Harriet Lerner. Um, she talks about that when we change things, people do what's called a change back move. So like now they're going to really ratchet it up. They're like, I don't even know you anymore. I don't know what's happened to you. You're not the person I married or I don't know what's gotten into you.
0: Right. Absolutely.
1: And we have to expect that there's going to be some boundary pushback when we try to change the dance. And we can stay lovingly connected to the people in our life and say, hey, I see that you're upset. And I still need to make a simple request that you do X, Y, and Z. I love you. I'm here. Like we don't want them to, we don't want their fear that, you know, you setting a boundary means the relationship is ending, but we also can't continue to put up with behavior in our lives from other people that makes us resentful because that's not good for the relationship either, you know? Yeah. So doing a resentment inventory and starting slow, start with low priority people just send the friggin' salad back when it's not what you ordered, right? So let's just start there.
0: <laughs> I love it. It's a great example. All right. Now, speaking of, you alluded to this a little bit, and I want to go off of it a little bit more and dig a little deeper when it comes to covert narcissism. Because I, I feel like when it comes to boundary setting, when you're in a relationship with a narcissist, you're meant to feel like you're the problem or that you're the one that's at fault, right? And you're trying Mm -hmm. to set a boundary with someone and you may not even know that they're a narcissist. You just know that of how they act towards you and respond towards you. And you might be trying to set a boundary with that person and that resentment's building up because they're making you feel like you're the one with the problem,
1: Mm -hmm. right?
0: So how can someone identify if they're in a relationship with a covert narcissist? What should they look for? What are some warning signs that they can be aware of?
1: Well, that's a great question. And the thing with narcissists is that there's there's really sort of two types, right? We hear a lot about the overt narc who's, you know, very charming and grandiose and is, you know, everyone knows, right? Kind of how they are in the world. The that they brag, they exaggerate their accomplishments, but then you have a covert narc, which is someone who presents differently. They might even seem shy. they might to other people, they're really insecure. Um, they're just as self-absorbed, though, let's get clear, as the other type, but they're typically perceived as more introverted, self-conscious, and insecure. So what are the signs? Right? Because it's not the classic external signs of narcissistic personality disorder is shyness and introversion self-consciousness insecurity defensiveness sensitivity to what others think of them and then signs that you can look out for right i mean all of them either way they're extremely sensitive to criticism right which whichever kind that they are but they're dismissive like within with a covert narc they're more like dismissive or sarcastic Um, and they act as if they're above criticism. They'll be like, someone says like, oh my God, I just got a new job. Must be nice to have a family that supported you, right? Like can never be happy for someone else. Oh my God, tons of passive aggressive behavior uh, as a manipulation tactic. tactic. Um, Always trying to look superior. I mean, they have a deep seated belief or need to be special right? And that entitles them to get what they want. They're always like, you know, life dealt me the short hand, you know, like I got a crappy hand in life or why doesn't it work out for me? But again, like there's all this blame and they also are really vengeful. They want to get back at anyone who they believe has wronged them. So their passive-aggressive behavior of (laughs) teasing, mocking, mocking, Remarks framed as jokes, quote unquote, wow, I hate that. Silent treatment, uh, sabotaging someone, either their work or their friendships, like telling someone something about someone. Subtle blame shifting is another like tricky technique um, so that the other person or other people question what happened where they don't take responsibility, of course. Um, pro- this one is so common too. Procrastinating on on um, tasks that they believe are beneath them.
0: Wow. Yeah. So they
1: just won't do it. And then finally you're like, oh, forget it. These dishes have been sitting here forever. You know, they need admiration. They're just, they're so exhausting.
0: Yes. And it's yeah. hard. And I can imagine it'd be hard to set a boundary with that type of person. Is that correct? Or is it even possible to set a boundary with a covert or an overt narcissist?
1: No, not n- not in the way that I teach it. I mean, I have a separate chapter in the book, which is called Boundary Bullies, because of this exact thing and what i teach you in that chapter is the the most common manipulation techniques like gaslighting and uh, love bombing and all the things that covert narcs and other it's not just them this, it could be any of the sort of cluster b personality disorders can can untreated right, right. can be in this um Like heavy on the manipulation in their relationships. Like It's all about control. It's all about controlling you. It's all about having you to themselves. It's never about you though, right? You're there to feed their narcissistic supply because they don't, the the real telltale sign though for people who are sort of new to narcissism is that whether it's covert or overt, they have no ability, no real authentic ability to have compassion for someone else. They don't. So even if they are good at being like, oh, that's too bad, they don't feel that way. They're only they can only think about themselves. It's very scary.
0: That is very scary. Uh, we could go on and on. I know you are just <laughs> a wealth of knowledge. I love everything we've been talking about, and we could probably do a whole other episode just on that alone. Uh, <laughs> but you know, I just want to encourage people to to get your book. I think everyone no matter what your personality is, no matter, you know, how you were raised, I, I think setting boundaries is just a healthy tool that everyone should learn. Um, so I'd love to, um, have you share where they can pick up the book. And yeah. also you have a, um, a, a codependency workshop coming up on October 19th on how to stop overgiving, giving over functioning, overthinking. If you can just share a little bit about that and where they can sign sure. up, that'd be great. Yay.
1: Um, Yes, the workshop is going to be amazing. It's the first one that I'm doing on high functioning codependency. So it's going to be great. Um, And that is two days from now. So it's on the 19th. And you go to terrycole.com forward slash forward slash HFC for high functioning codependency. Um, And we're going to be covering basically the signs and symptoms because I feel like with high functioning codependence, just because you're so capable, just because you can do it, doesn't mean you should be doing it. And there'll be a lot of learning discernment, discernment, and also learning about boundaries and language. And you'll walk with a whole workbook. So it's going to be a great uh, workshop. So yes, I would love it if anyone wants to come, terrycole.com forward slash HFC. And the book you guys can get at boundarybossbook.com. I'm still giving all the bonuses because why not? I made them for you. You know, people try to make the bonus go away. I'm like, why? I literally made it for the people who are buying the book. I want to keep giving it to them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. That's amazing. Well, I love it. And um, I hope people do sign up for your workshop. I'm going to put the link in the podcast notes and then also on my social media. So if anyone wants to sign up, um, they can do so and just learn more from you. You are, Like I said, you are just a wealth of knowledge. And it's a topic that isn't talked about very much. And it's so important for all of us to learn how to do it and 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 heal from the things that we thought we were doing it the way we should in the past. And that may not be the the healthiest choice for us and learning how to do that. So thank you again. And um, thanks again for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kim. Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first, then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at the Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call nine one one.